turn in your copy of God's Word to the sixth chapter of Luke's Gospel as we pick up where we left off last Lord's Day as we've been walking through uh, Luke's Gospel together. Uh, we come now to a, a very important passage where Luke records to us uh, the calling of the twelve apostles. Up to this point, we've seen uh, Luke show us very clearly the authority of Jesus, and now we are seeing people respond to that authority. Here, many at this point have responded through becoming followers of Jesus. We know as disciples of Jesus, and it is from these many disciples that he will now call 12 who he will name as apostles, and they will be tasked with uh, building the Lord's church, taking the message of the gospel to the world. And, and all but one will be faithful to that task, as we see even in the naming of the 12 that Luke gives us. And so we're going to look this morning at just this short passage, these names, uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, and out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand as I read for us this passage, uh, read for us by a doctor named Luke who writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he called, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. If you would pray with me. Father, as we consider these men who were called as apostles, the many that they were among who were called to be disciples, I pray, and that you might help us to consider the call you've placed before us today. The call to have faith. The call to repent of our sin. The call to confess Christ as our Lord. The call to lay down our lives and to follow Him. And that we might have a, a firm understanding of how we indeed have responded to that call. Help us to discern and understand these things as we walk through your word together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jacob Koshi grew up in Singapore with great ambitions. He wanted to acquire wealth and success, but this led him to a life of crime. He became an international drug lord. Uh, he did acquire wealth and he acquired success in his own right, but uh, eventually that led to his arrest and his imprisonment. And, and all these things that he had built up, they, they weren't there. He had none of the lavish comforts he had grown accustomed to, uh, one of which was smoking. He was a chain smoker, and in the Singapore prison, he wasn't allowed to have cigarettes, but being the international smuggler, he figured out a way to smuggle in tobacco. And then he would take the, the paper from a Gideon Bible that someone had left in his cell, and he would roll cigarettes in pages of that Bible. 
On one occasion, according to his later testimony, he fell asleep smoking one of those cigarettes. And when he woke up, he found that he had a remnant from Acts chapter 9. He could just make out these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he didn't think much of it at the time, but this question sort of haunted him, and it got to the point that he wanted to understand who Saul was and who he was persecuting and what all of that meant. And so he asked the guard to bring him another Bible. He did, and he began to read it. And as he read it, and he read Saul's testimony, the Holy Spirit convicted him. And he began to come to this deep understanding that if God could save Saul, God could save anyone even him and he confessed Christ as his Lord and God radically changed his life he began to lead other prisoners to faith in Christ and when he eventually got out of prison uh, he would get married he and his wife would become missionaries they would spend the rest of their days in the far east sharing the gospel as I reread Jacob Koshy's testimony recently I was reminded of the passage we looked at not long ago in Luke chapter 5 where the Pharisees and scribes see Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors and they began to question his disciples about the company he was keeping. And hopefully you remember, it was just a few weeks ago, how Jesus responded to them. He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. <laughs> This passage before us today is a reminder of that very thing. That Jesus indeed came to save. That he came to save sinners and call them to repentance. And that from those repented sinners that he would then build his church of which we belong to today. As sinners who have been saved and redeemed. And it is a truth. The salvation story that that we need to always remember when we gather, when we pray, when we give, when we sing, when we study God's Word, that Jesus is still in the business today of saving sinners. He saved us. And He's still saving men. And so I want us to consider these things and, and how God calls us to be a part of this work as we come now to this passage where Jesus is now calling from so many who have been saved, so many who have responded to his authority as Lord and King, confessed him as their Lord and Savior, and now from these many he is calling twelve who will be these apostles, these messengers of the kingdom, these sent out ones who will then go and build his church. And, and as we're reminded from the very naming of these men in this passage, all but one will do that. Judas the traitor. And the rest will be faithful. But before we look at these men, I want us to start with looking at what Luke tells us about how Jesus prepares to call these men. And so we'll begin there in your outline with point one. Jesus prepares now to call the twelve. That's how we often see them referred to in the scripture as, as the twelve. And now Jesus, before calling the twelve, he is preparing for this call. Luke says it this way in verse 12. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, we read this in other gospel accounts. Mark and Luke tell us specifically that he went to pray, he went to the mountain to pray, but, but only Luke gives us this detail that all night he continued in prayer. 
In fact, that, that phrase contains some language that's unique, not just to Luke, but to this very verse. It's the only time this Greek phrase is used in the entire Bible. And it's because primarily it's a medical phrase, which makes sense on why Dr. Luke would use it. It refers to a, a doctor who would, in essence, have an, an all-night vigil with a patient who was very sick. A doctor who would not leave the side of that patient they would be there to attend to their needs because their needs were so desperate and so great and and, and that's the intensity with which Luke is describing this this all-night prayer vigil that Jesus has another interesting point as you look at the language here is that where we read that he prayed all night to God that could be translated he prayed all night the prayer of God here we see a a glimmer into the the mystery of our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, God the Son, praying empowered, filled with the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, crying out to God the Father. There's this, this communion taking place between Father, Son, and Spirit, and it goes throughout the night. Now, Luke doesn't give us commentary on what Jesus prayed throughout that night. I would like that commentary. I would like a prayer journal from Jesus. I'd like to be able to read through it and and notice what all it is he was praying for. That prayer that would have lasted not just for 10 to 12 minutes, but 10 to 12 hours as he is praying all night long. Luke doesn't give us those details, but I think the context infers that he is praying about the events that are coming the next day. That this calling of the twelve that these 12 men who would be apostles, these 12 men who would be called out. But in praying about this, I think it's important for us just to, to note for a moment that Jesus, in, in preparation, is praying. He is praying before the event takes place. He doesn't gather together these 12 and then pray, although I'm sure there was much prayer, as we know in the Scripture, that took place with them. But, but before this critical moment at the building of the kingdom, Jesus pulls away, and he prays. I think that's, that's a model for us as well, and it's a reminder to us of our need to pray first. <laughs> because I think often we pray last. Often for us, when there's a, a monumental decision in front of us, we will, we will make the decision, and then we will pray about the decision that's already been made. We'll make the decision and then we'll talk to others about the decision and then ask them to pray for us. Well, pray for me because here's what's going to happen. Here's what I have decided. Or sometime our prayer comes because we've made the decision and it was a terrible decision and now all the fallout from that bad decision has taken place and now we're asking people to pray that it'll get better. (laughs) I messed up. This person messed up. Would you pray for this messed up situation? And yet here, notice how Jesus is praying. He is praying first. Now, Philip Ryken in his commentary says it this way. For Jesus, prayer comes first. If Jesus began his mission with prayer, how can we expect to accomplish anything at all without it? Now, that the motivation for prayer should not be guilt, <laughs> but it is a reminder to us that, that we should start with prayer. We see Jesus starting with prayer. And I think 
there there's a model. I think what it is Jesus prayed for, which we don't have in front of us, probably is a bit different than what it is we would have prayed for because I would imagine if we were in this context and situation where we were tasked with calling out 12 from the many, our prayers would be something like, God, give us discernment and help us to know who we should choose. Help us not to choose the wrong person. Help us to choose the right person. Give us wisdom. We, we'd be praying for that wisdom. Of course, Jesus here, God incarnate, he, he is the Word made flesh. <laughs> I think it's likely that his prayer was a bit different because I believe at this point the, the choice has been made. I mean, the choice was made when he got into Peter's boat. <laughs> the choice was made when he called Peter to follow him and told Peter he would make him a fisherman of men, that the choice was already made. I believe firmly that, that Jesus knew in that moment that Peter would be among the twelve. I think as well as Jesus approaches that tax booth belonging to Levi, who we know here is Matthew, that the, the choice was made as he is calling him to a, abandon that, that life and lifestyle of sin and immorality and to trust in him and to follow him. And so where we would be praying for that wisdom, that discernment, I think here Jesus then likely is praying a bit differently. The, the choice is made, and yet he is praying, I believe, for the very decision. He's praying, I think it's likely, for these men. He knows them. He knows, as we've already seen, what they're thinking. <laughs> he knows their doubts and their fears. He knows things to come. And so I think it's likely that if we had a prayer journal in front of us that Peter, that Jesus had filled out that night, we would see Peter. <laughs> I need to pray for Peter. I need to pray that he would stand firm. I need to pray for Peter when he doesn't stand firm and he falls short. Father, would you help him and empower him and help him to get back up, to walk by faith, even in the midst of failure. Praying for Thomas, the doubter. Father, would you help all these questions and all these doubts that Thomas has and will have and will continue to have even after the resurrection? Would you strengthen when he falls short? Would you help him to persevere at times when, when everyone else is believing and trusting, but, but he's just not willing to do it? His mind swimming with these doubts. I think that person after person, if we were to go down that list, we would see Jesus praying for these men and praying for their faith and praying that they might be strengthened in their faith. And the reason I think that is because that's exactly how Jesus is praying for you and I today. I think an often overlooked reality in our faith is that we have in this moment Christ our Lord Praying for us. Interceding for us. And what a blessing and privilege this is. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and He is interceding for us. 1 John 2, 1, we read, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, because we're all going to sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our advocate. He pleads on our behalf, not based on our self-righteousness, but based on His true, genuine righteousness with which we are covered. 
The writer of Hebrews says it this way in chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. And so this, this picture we have here that Luke gives us of, of Jesus crying out by the patient's bedside, that, that intensity through the night for these men whom He's calling to follow Him, that same intercession, it takes place for you and I. We are truly followers of Jesus today. And friends, I don't know about you, but that, that, that brings me great comfort. Because there are a few areas I can think of this morning that I have been more unfaithful in than in the ministry of prayer. <laughs> I have told many of you at times I'm praying for you, and, and I'm just going to let you know, there's probably at least one of you in this room I didn't pray for. I won't tell you which one. Because I can't remember, which is why I didn't pray. And, and you, you're good people. And I know that so many of you, you, you pray faithfully, but there are times when you fall short as well. We, we've become accustomed in the church of saying, I'll pray for you, almost as if we're just saying, hi, hello, how are you, when we really don't want to know how someone is. It's a, it's a passing thing we say. Oh, okay, thank you for telling, I'll pray for you. And yet so many times we, we fall short, but Jesus never falls short. And there's a great encouragement, a great comfort, a great strength and power in our faith to know that Christ our Lord prays faithfully for you and I. That the Spirit intercedes for us when we don't even know how to pray. That triune communion that's taking place in the, the Trinity, there is perfect prayer for the saints taking place in this moment. Now, that's the picture I think we're seeing here of Jesus. He's at this mountain. He, he is praying all night to God in preparation for what is going to take place. And then Luke tells us what takes place, which brings us to this second point there. Before you, point two, Jesus then calls the twelve. Now again, I would appreciate further commentary than what Luke and the other gospel writers give us. It, it tells us here that Jesus, when day comes, he, he calls his disciples. So this would have been a, a multitude. If you go ahead there to verse 17, you see, and he came down with them and stood in a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. The context there, Luke is saying, is there's this great crowd of disciples and then there are the 12. And so we don't know how much a great crowd is, but it's more than 12 and it's probably many, perhaps hundreds at this point. And Luke just tells us that he calls those many, however many those are, and then from the many, he calls out the twelve. He doesn't tell us the logistics of that, but that's the way my brain works. I wonder about the logistics of that. I mean, did they, they all stand around, and it's kind of like we might picture a, a game of pickup basketball, and it's, you know, you and you and you and you. Did, did Jesus have a list? Does he give the list to Peter? Peter's name's always first. That might explain it. You know, that's very Peter-ish for him to do. You know, well, I'm me first. And then, you know, goes down the list. If there was some type of listing like this, it, it would explain to us perhaps why he gives some additional information about some of these names. And so, you know, Peter calls out the name James and like eight guys named James step forward. Well, no, the, the son of Alphaeus. Oh, okay, that's the one. 
But we don't know exactly how this took place. But what we do know from Luke and the other gospel writers is that there are many that are gathered there. And then from the many, he calls out by name these twelve. And that's all we have in front of us is just those 12 names. But of course, we have much more than just those 12 names as we consider the whole counsel of God's Word. And we're not going to walk through everything we learn about each of these men, but I do want to highlight just a couple of things about them this morning to give us a bit of a context and understanding of, of their ordinariness, <laughs> of their lack of being exceptional, their commonness. Verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter. Well, we know that Jesus gives him the name the rock. But he starts out as anything but the rock, doesn't he? He considers himself to be one, but this is the one who's so quick to speak, but so slow to be faithful. Lord, I'll never deny you. <laughs> but he does. And yet, it will be Peter who will be the rock on which Jesus would build his church because of the work that he does in his life. But as he calls him, he's a fisherman, a commoner. He'll be used greatly for his kingdom. Then, verse 14, Luke continues, and Andrew, his brother. We know that, that Andrew, like his brother Peter, was a fisherman. We also know from John's Gospel that uh, Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist before he followed Jesus. And in fact, in John's Gospel account, he says that uh, John, as Jesus passes by, he makes that, that great declaration, behold the Lamb of God, and there are two disciples with him. And John tells us one of them is Andrew, Peter's brother, who at that moment stops following John, leaves him and begins to follow Jesus. Well, we get a glimpse there of, of Andrew's trust and his faith he would then go on to serve Christ, I believe, with great humility. We, we don't see a lot about him on the forefront in the gospel accounts. We see him really working in the background. A common, faithful fisherman who trusted in Jesus and walked with him. Next, Luke gives us verse 14. And, and James and John, these are the, the, the brothers who were business partners with Peter and Andrew, we've already read in Luke's Gospel that, that they're there when, when Peter confesses Christ and becomes that fisher of men, that they also leave behind everything to follow Him. We also learn from Mark's Gospel that Jesus gives them a nickname. The Sons of Thunder. <laughs> if Jesus was going to give me a nickname, I'd like that one. That's kind of a strong one, but I, I think the indication is that they were... They were a bit fiery, maybe a bit quick to speak like Peter at times. They, they're the ones that when a, a village rejects Jesus in Luke chapter 6, they ask Jesus if they want him just to call down fire on the whole village. <laughs> they're these sons of thunder. And yet, their, their temperament would change. We would see then as they carry through the gospel accounts their, their faithfulness to the end. James is the first of the apostles to be martyred for his faith, included in Luke's writings in the book of Acts. Now John, we believe, was likely the, the last of the twelve to die. He was the one who would go on to write not only a gospel, but three epistles in the book of Revelation. Ordinary fishermen. 
that God would use in extraordinary ways. Verse 14 goes on, and, and Philip, <laughs> Philip's one that we see in the Scripture, he, he tends to struggle at times to fully understand what's taking place. In fact, when we read the account of the feeding of the 5,000, uh, Philip's the one wondering, how, how exactly are we going to feed all these people? And the Scripture tells us that, that Jesus kind of tests him and, and asks him, and, and Philip begins to try to calculate how much money they have and how many loaves that can buy. <laughs> Not, not quite grasping what's about to take place. And Philip's also the one that when Jesus explains the mystery of the Trinity, that he and the Father are one, he just says to Jesus, can you just show me the Father? He seems to be at times a step behind, and yet he was faithful as well. An ordinary person who had lots of questions. God uses greatly for his purposes. Then verse 14, Luke goes on, and Bartholomew, who we also know as Nathaniel. And when Philip initially tells him about Jesus, he's the one that responds, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it gives us some insight to what he was initially thinking about Jesus, perhaps a bit skeptical. And yet he too would trust in Christ and follow Christ and God would use him greatly. Then verse 14, 15, we have Matthew, who we've known up to this point in Luke's gospel as Levi, this tax collector, uh, this one who would be most hated uh, among Israel, among the Jewish people. And yet Jesus calls him out of this lifestyle of being hated and wickedness. He's the one who throws the party, the feast for Jesus, where all the sinners and tax collectors come, where the Pharisees then say, why has he been in time with these sinners and tax collectors? Which brings us back to the verse I mentioned to start our sermon today, that Jesus didn't come for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Well, we don't know from Luke's gospel or the other gospels why it is he goes from being referred to a from Levi to Matthew, many times people had uh, more than one name. It could have been that, or it could be that like Peter, Jesus gave him the name Matthew because the name Matthew means gift of God. And that's exactly what Matthew becomes. <laughs> I mean, you think about it. He, he goes from being a, a taker from God's people to being a giver to God's people, giving them the good news of the gospel. An ordinary unfaithful, wicked man who saved and used in extraordinary ways. Then we have verse 15, Thomas. <laughs> Thomas, who we all remember as doubting Thomas. He is the one who doubts. He's the one who after the resurrection, he, he's not there to see the resurrected Christ. And when they tell him about the resurrected Christ, he still doesn't believe until he can put his fingers in the wounds of his Lord, who when he sees him says, I don't need to do that now, but but he's one who, again, it should comfort us that here we have this doubter, this questioner, who's among those who follow Jesus and remain faithful and is used in extraordinary ways. Next, in verse 15, we have James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, not to be confused with James, the brother of John, or James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote the New Testament letter. Thus, Luke tells us his name. James, he is the son of Alphaeus. Mark calls him James the Younger, which can also be translated James the Lesser or James the Smaller. <laughs> I think this is probably an indication that he was likely small or young. And in that degree, lesser, he, he stays in the background, we see in the Gospels, but he is used greatly among the twelve as well. Though at this point, he's marked by his obscurity. Verse 15, Luke continues, and, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, <laughs> 
that the, the, the zealots were the, the nationalists of Israel. They, they would be the one wearing the hats that said, make Israel great again. That they had great pride in Israel, which just in reading that, your mind may begin to think, I wonder how Simon the zealot got along with Matthew the tax collector. But you'll recognize here, he says, Simon, who was called the zealot. Levi, who had been the tax collector. You see, God is in the business of saving people from radically different backgrounds and uniting them for the cause of Christ. Which should be exactly how the church looks today. <laughs> Not a people who are gathered by all their similarities in life, but people who gather and united by their faith in their Lord Jesus, which is primary and takes precedence over all other things. We see that even among the twelve. Verse 16, Luke then continues, and Judas, the son of James, we also know him as Thaddeus. We know very little about him from the Gospels as well, apart from a question that he asked Jesus in John 14 that indicates that he's probably a bit like Simon the Zealot. He, he's looking for the national establishment of Israel. And that's where Jesus, in essence, corrects him. He promises the gift of the Holy Spirit who would take over not the world, but would take over men's hearts. And then, verse 16, to one among the twelve who would not be faithful, Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Judas who would indeed betray Jesus. Which, you know, for some of us may bring to mind the question, well, if Jesus knows these things, and yet we see it is the betrayal of Judas that plays an important part in the providence of God. That Jesus indeed would be arrested, falsely accused, tried, wrongly convicted, go to the cross, die in your place and in my place, that our sins might be atoned for. All of these men were common. What really unites them before following Jesus is their absolute ordinariness. And yet it is from these ordinary men who later are referred to, some of them, as unschooled and ordinary. It is from these men that Christ would build His kingdom. There is much more we could say about them, but, but for now, let me just say this, our third and concluding point. Jesus accomplishes His mission through ordinary people. Now this is an important reminder for us. Because far too often we, we tend to think, well if God would just save this person, this celebrity, this athlete, this politician, this, this great influencer of society and culture, if, if they became a Christian, imagine the platform. And yet we've seen far too many times professions among those with great platforms that prove to be far less than genuine. Sometimes over years, sometimes over hours. We're reminded that it's not the extraordinary people of the world, but it is the ordinary people of the world that God is in the business of building His church through. And yet we need to kind of shift our minds to get around this because we tend to look for the extraordinary. We tend to look at the external. What somebody might bring to the table. 
for the kingdom. I've seen, perhaps you have as well, a number of times this fictitious memo in regards to this passage. If you haven't, let me just read it for you because I think it makes the point. It's from the Israeli Office of Management Consultants. And it's written to Jesus in an attempt to help him select the twelve. It says this, Thank you for submitting the resumes of the twelve men you have selected for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of personality inventory and management skill tests, and we have summarized our results. It is our opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background education and vocational aptitude for the type of work that you are undertaking. Simon Peter is given to an offensive temper and will likely become unhinged. Andrew shows no potential for leadership. Thomas demonstrates an isolationist attitude and will undermine team morale. Philip has no visionary skills, and the two brothers, James and John, will place personal interest above company loyalty. Frankly, they are mama's boys. And we feel it's our duty to inform you that Matthew has been put on probation by our Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus have leanings towards the radical left and appear unstable. However, there is one candidate who has a keen business mind, is highly motivated and responsible. We recommend to you as your chief financial officer, Judas Iscariot. <laughs> I mean, that really is how we look at things, isn't it? When we look so often at the external, at those things we believe would qualify, but the Scripture reminds us time and time again of what? That God looks at the heart. Perhaps you remember that in our study of King David, that, that, that selection by Samuel of who would be the next king. And in that, the, the external did not point to David. And yet in the calling of David, we are reminded that God looks at the heart. We're also reminded in our own calling of these very things. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26 tells us this, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There's no boasting in this list of the twelve. I find it interesting as you consider the context here, not, not a single rabbi, now not the high priest or somebody in his family, not someone of stature, but twelve common, ordinary men. And that should encourage us today. But it's because among the ordinary that, that God calls out those who will be a part of building his church, and his kingdom. Farmers, college students, people who are just headed in their course of life in many different directions. And then God puts before them this gospel call that says this, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of our sin is death. But God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we're still sinners, 
Christ died for us. That if we will confess Christ as our Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved, redeemed, regenerated, made new, and used for His kingdom purposes. And those purposes on the surface may look completely ordinary. But there is nothing ordinary about the kingdom of God. He is doing an extraordinary work each and every Lord's day through us. If we will indeed repent, have faith, and trust in Him. And so the question for us today, friends, is that very thing. Will you repent? Will you have faith? Will you trust in Him? That is our invitation this and each Lord's Day. So if you would stand with me as we respond to this gospel call.